welcome to Unlike. Okay. Well, hello. Thank you for joining us. My name is Duke Ralston, and I am co-host of Tennessee Macabre. And I am Blake Ray, co-founder and editor of Pulp Factory E-Zine, as well as a lead singer of the band Blood Oaks. How you doing, Duke? I'm doing okay, Blake. How about you? I'm doing really well. Good. I'm doing uh, really want well. Us, want to tell us what you're drinking tonight? Terrapin. Excellent. Oh, wow. Good stuff. And it's been sitting in my car all day, so I have a mug. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well. Yeah, what are you drinking, dude? I am drinking uh, Big River IPA. Uh, Big River I don't know if it was the first microbrewery in Chattanooga, but it's the first one I remember. They opened up the last year or so I was in college. So uh, I spent a lot of time down there drinking their brews. A friend of mine's younger brother was one of their brew masters. So it's okay. it's kind of my, my home beer, you know. And I, I've really grown to appreciate IPAs. Didn't used to like them very much, but they've kind of grown on me. And so I drink a lot of IPA now. It has a nice citrusy flavor to it. You know, I don't normally do IPAs. Uh-huh. But uh, I'm making an exception for this one because it's from Athens. And I'm right. I'm riding that college vibe lately, you know. Yeah. I think it's a midlife crisis thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, because I'm not actually doing what I did in college, which is just drinking whatever I can get my hands on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was uh, cleaning out the taps on the cheap beer most of the time. Oh, but yeah. every once in a while, I could afford to go to Big River. There you go. <laughs> oh, man. You know what I used to drink? Dude, you might remember this. Um, do you remember Southpaw Light? Oh, yeah. Ooh, that was my first beer. <laughs> yep. yep, I remember Southpaw. <laughs> and I loved it. I did, too. I did, too. It was not uh, good. No, we thought it was, but it wasn't. It it worked. <laughs> like it, it accomplished the task. At that point in my life, my palate was not that highly developed. Right. So. Mm. So, what are we talking about today, dude? Well, we are talking about probably my all-time favorite author, Robert E. Howard, and um, most people associate Robert E. Howard with Conan the Barbarian. He also developed uh, multiple for fantasy in the Weird Tale magazines. He did some westerns. He also did some excellent horror. And uh, we chose this tale because it combines fantasy and horror. And it pulled in some elements from last week's author, H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. The Lovecraft... uh... The Lovecraft mythos is alive and well in this story. Yes, it is. 
Certainly. Uh, what would you call this? Because I think genre classification is uh, an interesting uh, hill to die on. Yes, it is. You know, it's not really fantasy because it is technically it is historical novel. A lot of poetic license taken with it. I would I would call this horror. I would call it historical fantasy horror. I mean, you got to come. I mean, you got to mesh genres here. It's not just one genre. It reminds me of uh, horror is a lot like uh, heavy metal mm-hmm. in that there's a million subgenres. Oh yes, you yes. know, um, you know, uh, I run into guys in the same store because I listen to a lot of heavy metal, and mm-hmm. I'll run into a guy in a store, and uh, my wife would be like, "Oh, that guy's got a heavy metal shirt," and I'm like. Yeah, but it's Stoner Doom, and I don't really listen to Stoner Dooms. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, you know, but, I, I'm mostly into thrash, and so yeah. we're not friends. <laughs> it can't work that, huh? The no. thing about this is, you know, it's not often that you have a Roman uh, a Roman governor involved in a horror story, you know? <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. To be honest, I never read any. Uh, I had not read any Robert E. Howard. Okay. I uh, I was familiar with Conan from the comic books. Right, right, right. And the the, the comic books, um, there have been many, many people that have written Conan stories since Robert E. Howard's death. Yeah. Uh, who's who of fantasy? However, the comic books are very faithful to Robert E. Howard's original tales. And so if you read Savage Sort of Conan, you know, you will you will find a lot of Robert E. Howard stuff in there. You find other folks stuff too, but you'll find a lot of Robert E. Howard stuff. Um, but he wrote like his this Brand McMorn tale is, in my opinion, one of the best. Uh, his King Cole tales are good. I love Solomon Cain. Um, and his horror. Solomon Cain is the uh, Solomon. Refresh Cain, me on Solomon Cain. Solomon Cain is he? He was a pirate slash privateer. Okay, he was a killer, but he comes to Christianity after uh, by way of a curse. So he he has this horrible past that he has to live with, and he basically becomes God's soldier, and his future ain't too bright either. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I mean it's, so it's kind of like that Constantine before Constantine. Yeah, it, it's 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 really dark, but it's a good tale. Man, I, his, uh, his horror is really good as well, and a lot of people don't even realize that he wrote horror. Well, you know, he's considered the father of the sword and sorcery mm-hmm. genre, yes. which uh, has, you know, just wide-reaching, mm-hmm. you know, uh, wide-reaching influence. Right. I, I think of uh, the sword and sorcery genre has had its most popular iteration probably in Star Wars. And I know yeah. that's like kind of a controversial statement, but Star Wars is not really sci-fi. It's sword no, and sorcery. It's sword and sorcery. It's absolutely sword and sorcery. It's just set uh, 
in in a technological future um in a planet far far away yeah yeah it's it's sword and sword and sorcery yeah i mean it basically starts with once upon a time a long yeah. time ago in a galaxy far far away exactly you know but uh i was i was blown away by this story to be honest good i'm glad I, yeah. I, I was hoping that you would be. Yeah, I had uh, never quite read anything like it. Mm -hmm. I mean... If, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, of course, you know, I've read Tolkien. Right. Tolkien but this is, is a whole different kind of... Yeah. Uh, it's a whole different kind. Um, this, you know, Tolkien is writing a proto-mythology. And... He said, or not a proto mythology, proto is probably the wrong prefix there. He's writing a modern mythology for the English mm. people. Yeah. And it has, there's darkness in Tolkien, but the good triumphs over the darkness. Robert E. Howard, every once in a while, somebody lights a cigarette in the darkness. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty bleak. And, even the stuff, the, the the Conan stuff that he writes that is not specifically designed to be horror has elements of horror in it. It has elements of noir in it too, right? Yeah. Yes. Like there's a certain Camus, Sartre, sort of, or Sartre, uh, however you pronounce that. I don't know. I never took a French, but uh, right. you, know, uh, you got that sort of darkness to it that I thought was interesting to see in that fantasy world. Yes. Yes. Because so often fantasy is black and white, good and evil. And this is a lot of gray. There's a lot of gray in here. It's hard. I mean, you know, there's a line and I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but there's a line that I kind of keyed on and got it written down here. Um, let's see where the witch cries at, at King at uh, Bran McMorn, are they mo more foul than a mortal who seeks their aid? And she's talking about the worms of the earth. Yeah. And, and so there's definitely, of course, the Roman soldier is evil. Uh, I mean, the Roman governor is evil. There's a seed of evil in Bran McMorn, uh, the witch, the worms of the earth. The only person in this story that is good and noble is Bran's servant. Mm -hmm. He offers basically, uh, he offers his own life. He offers to, to kill the Roman governor knowing that he'll die in the attempt. Yeah. And even that, I mean, his most noble act is I'll kill the guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, it, it, it translated into modern terms, we would not consider that very, very noble. Yeah, no, no, I see what you're saying, but yeah, but that, that, but that's the only guy. Assuming that you take the Pictish and Gaelic point of view that the Romans are evil, this is the only guy in the story that that seems to be a decent guy. Well, you know, it gets in, and we'll get into this, but it gets into the idea of how much power one can wield mm -hmm. responsibly. Yes. You know, Definitely. I think power is an underlying theme in this. Absolutely. But before we get too far afield, let's talk about Howard. Yeah, let's talk about Howard. So this was published in 1932 in Weird Tales. 1932 in Weird Tales. Howard Howard uh, published a lot in Weird Tales. He was born in Cross Plains, Texas, 
Uh, we've already said he was the father of the sword and software genre. Um, he published this in November, and he published his first Conan in December. So Brand McMoran and Conan were born a, a month apart. Well, I think this may actually have been the last of the Brand McMoran tales. I don't know that for certain. I haven't researched it. Um, but Conan becomes his most wildly popular tale. Um, in 1936, Howard's mother goes into a coma and he kills himself. He finds out she will not be waking up. Yeah. She had struggled with tuberculosis for a long time and he finds out she won't be waking up and he goes out of the car and Bam. ends his life. Um, yeah. Which is terrible. And It is terrible. And I don't know huge amounts about the man. I know... You know how he come up with Conan, right? No, no, no. Okay. And this is by this is from Robert Howard's own lips. He said that Conan came to him in a dream and uh, woke him, or come come to him when he was asleep and woke him up, and told him that either he would put his tail on paper with the typewriter, or that Conan would put his brains on the paper with his battle axe. Wow. And everything I have ever read about that statement said that it was given. It was not a joke. Marilyn. It was very deadpan and he was very serious. So that's one way to get through Raiders block. <laughs> <laughs> it was almost beer spray on that one. <laughs> yeah. But he, he was obviously a very talented guy. You know, very anytime talented. you have someone who is a pioneer of genre, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I am always in awe of them. I am too. Yeah. yeah. And I will tell you one that you should, uh, that you should read. And this is, we're diverging a little bit from worms of the earth, but this is one that you should read because it's, it's a, uh, it's called red nails and it is set in the Pictish frontier, the Pictish people, you know, Conan goes back maybe to anywhere from 10 to 32,000 years before our time. Mm -hmm. And it is after Atlantis sinks, but it's before our age develops. And so it's kind of this proto Europe that goes through a cataclysm. Then our age comes around. The Picts are the only people that existed in that wor world and continue into ours. Mm. Conan's okay. people are Sumerians, and the Sumerians in Robert E. Howard's universe ultimately become the Gales, the Scots, and the Irish. Mm -hmm. So the the people that Robert E. and Robert E. Howard, we talked about race with H.P. Lovecraft, and definitely talk about race with Robert E. Howard as well. Um, he is fascinated with origins of peoples and where they come from. And he has this ideal person and it, it kind of to me goes back to the whole idea of the Jacksonian frontier. His idea of the perfect person is the frontiers person. And that tale I was telling you about red nails, Conan is fighting at a fort on the Pictish border and he's fighting the Picts. And essentially what it is, it's Fort Apache with swords instead of rifles. 
So it's this odd uh, mix of American frontier epic and sword and sorcery tale. It's very good. Really? Yes. Very good. Very good story. So if you get a chance, read that. Huh. I definitely want to read that. Mm-hmm. Um, the more, uh, after reading this, mm-hmm. I, I definitely am into reading more of his, read more of his work. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, this is um, one author that I, I have been reading this. Well, my father was a huge Robert E. Howard fan and he would bring home the Conan comic books. Oh, okay. Religiously. And so I've literally been reading Robert E. Howard since I could read. Well, there you go. Yeah. I, uh, I was definitely more of a sci-fi guy. Right. Right. You know? Right. I like sci-fi too. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, I, I enjoy sci-fi as well. Um, but this is probably my favorite. Yeah. Uh, we will have to, at some point, talk about Asimov. Oh, yes. Of yeah. course. But let's uh, let's get back to uh, Howard. Okay. So, just to give you a little idea, we're, we're talking Worms of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Robert E. Howard. What? Published in 1932. Yeah, in 1932. Uh, in Weird Tales magazine, which Weird Tales, uh, the influence is far region. Oh, Lord. far region. Yeah. You know, my magazine, you know, Pulp Factory, check us out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, is definitely a love letter to Weird Tales. Mm-hmm. You know, so you've got the story. We've already said it's about Bran McMoran, King of the Picts, mm-hmm. and he vows vengeance against Titus Sulla, a Roman mm-hmm. governor, um, because of a crucifixion of a fellow Pict. Mm-hmm. Now, I thought that was an especially gut-wrenching scene. Yes. Because, one, crucifixion such a horrible death. Yes. No. Um, two... There is this moment where the the man being depicted being crucified is staring at his king, who is in who is, you know, incognito. He's right. posing as a spy, or posing as he is a spy posing as an ambassador, and he can't help. No. So that sparks this sort of hatred for the Romans. So this guy is looking at Bran, begging for help with his eyes at the same time that Titus Sulla is mocking Bran. Yeah. It, it, it is brutal. Yeah. It is brutal. And it speaks a lot to the idea that honor and masculinity is very important here. Mm-hmm. But, uh, well, we'll get into what I think he was saying about masculinity. Okay. Yeah. Um, so basically, Brain goes back to his quarters and he decides, I'm going to go. I'm going to find these creatures. Worms of the earth is what the pigs called them. They're kind of reptilian, snake like, uh, followers of Yig kind of stuff. 
this is an idea that will be expanded on in the Conan stories, the idea of the reptilian subrace. Mm-hmm. And he goes out trying to find them, encounters a witch, which um, this is one of the better witches in, yeah. in this era. Yes. You know? Uh and she's sort of half worm, half human. Mm-hmm. He uh, trades her a sexual favor for, you know, uh, the the location of the black stone, which is a religious artifact for the worms of the earth, right? Right. He then steals the black stone, hides it by throwing it into the... Uh, into the lake, uh, which is, there's a lot of references to Dagon in this, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is interesting because that is a Philistine god that Lovecraft used a lot. Right. One of the few yeah. he didn't make up himself, exactly. which I think is interesting. I do too. And I also, I also think it's interesting from our story uh, from the last podcast uh, the inspector in New Orleans, the idol that they found was made out of this mysterious black stone. Mm-hmm. And so you wonder, Howard also had a horror story that was a, a Lovecrafting horror story called the black stone. Mm-hmm. So one wonders if this, I mean, and you never, there's no description given of it other than to say it's a black stone. And Brad McMorn immediately, when he retrieves it, he immediately covers it and then he throws it into Diagon Mirror. So, mm. I, in my mind, I wonder if this is a Cthulhu idol, just like in Call of Cthulhu. You know, I had that exact same thought. Yeah. Like if this was a Yog Sothoth, Cthulhu, something like that, because mm-hmm. it just, there's so many parallels. Right, you know, and that comes out of this sort of puritanical Protestant upbringing these guys had. Yeah, you know, the fear of idolatry. Yes, you know. So anyway, he uh, he makes a deal with the worms of the earth mm-hmm. that he'll give them back their idol if they bring him the governor. The governor is set up in Trajan's Tower, which is this impregnable fortress. And then you have a really, really uh, interesting point where he goes to the tower and it's gone. Yeah. It's been knocked down. Yeah. (laughs) Dug out from underneath. Yes. Heart-wrenching moment with a, uh, would you call him a centurion, Roman centurion? Roman centurion in the yard, yes. Yeah. Where the guy's dying. Yeah. You have this, what would have been, you know, a Roman, a fortified Roman tower, which would have been the ultimate technology, the ultimate in war technology of that time period. And it is completely demolished by these primitive beings that live in the earth. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of idea of technology, which you don't think of in sword and sorcery, but there's a lot of this idea of modern versus ancient. Right. 
Right. You know, civilized versus uncivilized. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. There's a lot of uh, attention paid to genealogy and roots, too. Yes. Anyway, the when the worms of the earth bring uh, the governor to him, when they bring Titus to him, Titus is insane. Gibbering, crying. You yes. Know. Um, he kills Sella. And then he realizes basically that some weapons are too foul to use even against Rome, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the end of your story. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. So let's get into a little analysis. What? Do, what do you? You know, we already talked about. We both really like the story, right? What do you? What do you think is going on in it? Well, okay, one thing that you see really well developed here, which the two things you see really well developed. The evil is the civilized Roman. This is the guy that, hang on, the cat is in front of my microphone. <laughs> okay, I was worried. Yeah, the cat is in front of my microphone. Okay, so Titus Sulla, is uh, the embodiment of evil, um, a worldly evil. Okay, let's, let's let's back up and say that. And what you got is this Pictish. The Romans would have certainly considered them barbarians, mm -hmm. and the barbarian is is the noble, kingly person. He's concerned about kingship and and honor and how he fights and how he lives. That's one thing you've got going on. The other thing you've got going on is don't mess with magic. It's bad. Mm -hmm. uh, Howard definitely expresses the belief that fighting with a sword is honorable. Fighting with a mat with magic is not. And that is the main theme of this story. He is concerned. If you look at it and I'm going to go, um, he, uh, the, the very first thing you notice is Gonar comes to him. Gonar is, he never calls him a druid. We call He calls him a witch. But Gonar was the clan druid. And he comes to him, but in the name of the gods, Bran expostulated the wizard. Take your vengeance in another way. Return to the heather. Mass your warriors. Take, uh, join with Cormac and Gales and spread a sea of blood and flame the length of the Great Wall. So Gonar comes to him and he's in, a, in the dream. It's self a form of magic, but, you know, there's a difference in communicating and raising eldritch demons to kill your enemies. Mm -hmm. And he begs him not to do it. He begs him to go to war instead. Yeah. And it's quite clear that that Gonar looks down on this use of magic. Mm -hmm. And then uh, uh, his reply is, Bran, their weapons too foul to use even against Rome. And Bran says, ha, there are no weapons I would not use against Rome. Upon the, upon the killing of Titus, upon the killing of Titus Sulla, Bran remarks, oh, upon the killing of Titus Sulla, Bran remarks, I give it in mercy, vale Caesar. 
Well for the Romans that they know not the secrets of this accursed land with its monster hot and mirrors, its fouled witch women and its lost caverns and subterranean realms were spawned in the darkness shapes of hell. So, and that's where the witch says, are they more foul than a mortal who seeks their aid? Because that is kind of another thing that comes in. How, how evil is Bran? How corrupted is Bran in his, in his quest for vengeance? Well, I think there's an interesting dichotomy there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think one of the themes is the idea of vengeance corrupting. Yes, you know, is, is there, I kept I keep thinking about Hamlet when I'm reading this. I could see that. Yeah. I could see that. The idea, uh, well, you know, but he's more proactive than Hamlet. Oh yeah, way more proactive than Hamlet. Yeah, I would think the Scottish play Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there is definitely this moment at the end that mimics that out damn spot. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's another thing that crops up when the witch, he takes off running and the witch goes, King of Pickland, King of Fools, do you blench at so small a thing? Stay and let me show you real fruits of the pits. (laughs) Ha ha, run, fool, run. But you're staying with the taint. You've called them forth and they will remember. And in their own time, they will come again. Yeah. You know, he rides off with this witch yelling at him. They're going to get you. Oh, yeah. He has done something that he can't undo. Absolutely. There is this idea of opening the gate. Mm-hmm. Right. Quite literally, you see gates opening. And yeah. I think that is, in a lot of ways, a metaphor for the idea of some things you can't put back. Right. You know? Right. When he takes when he takes that when he goes in to uh, Dagon was it Dagon Hill or Dagon Mound? Dagon's Mound. Dagon's Mound. And it, there's a there's a really um, neat line that I recorded. When a man turns his back on peril, its clammy menace looms more grisly than when he advances upon it. So Bran, crawling back up the knighted shaft with his grisly prize, felt the darkness turn on him and slink behind him, grinning with dripping fangs. Clammy sweat beaded his flesh, and he hastened to the best of his ability, ear strained for some stealthy sound to betray that fell shapes were at his heels. Strong shudders shook him, despite himself, and the short hair on his neck prickled as if the cold wind blew at his back. And this is just him walking through the passage when nothing happens. Yeah. But something happened. Yeah. Yeah, something <laughs> something eventually happened. does happen. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot happening. Like constantly yeah. something is happening. Yeah. And mostly it's this guy, Brad McMear, digging himself in deeper. Yeah. You're watching someone do something irreversible. It is one of those great texts like. Moby Dick, like Macbeth. Yes. Where the dramatic irony is not used for comedy, it's used for horror. Yes. You know, we know he shouldn't use this from the beginning. Right. He knows he shouldn't use it from the beginning. He He even says, we will not 
the adder in the path. We will not use the adder in the path. Right. And yet, you know, the first thing he does mm-hmm. is use the adder in the path. Exactly. Now, I think to get away from theme for a second, mm-hmm. I want to talk about the way this is written because you've read a couple of passages, I think, really exemplify something I think is important here. Okay. And that's the idea of art as technique. Mm-hmm. Right? right? Now, Shklovsky, which I'm butchering that, it's Russian. <laughs> Shlotsky or, you know, whatever. He uh, he was a Russian formalist writing about, right. writing about Chekhov, right? Okay. And he says something I think is that is stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Habitualization devours work, clothes, furniture, one's wife, and the fear of war. If the whole complex lives of many people go on unconsciously, then such lives are as if they have never been. An art exists that one may recover the sensation of life. It exists to make one feel things, to make the stone stony. The purpose of art is to impart the sensation of things as they are perceived and not as they are known. The technique of art is to make objects unfamiliar, to make forms difficult, to increase the difficulty and length of perception, because the process of perception is an aesthetic end in itself and must be prolonged. So basically what he's saying in a million words when he could have used to, you know, is that Art lets us re-experience the familiar in a new way, right? right? Right. So I think that a lot of the horror in this story actually comes from that technique. Yeah. You follow? I follow. I follow. Yeah. Um, you were giving me that look like, I don't know where he's going. <laughs> but um... I, know, I know where you're going. I mean, I think that passage I just read where you're talking about you know, he could have easily said, you know, Bran went down the dark hallway. I think that's what brought it up for me. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you, yeah, I get what you're saying. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that idea of re-experiencing the world, especially this world, mm-hmm. a historical world in a new way. Think about the way he's described. Mm-hmm. They use wolf and panther over and over. Right? Yes. Yes. Clan um, Yeah. And so that to me is an interesting part of where the horror comes from is just prolonging these moments. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I said last time when we were talking about Lovecraft's writing. Right. That when you're in the middle of something really bad, time seems to stretch out. Right? Right. Now, what he has here, when you look at it, is a great grip on the way time works. Mm-hmm. He does. I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't get over the way this guy writes. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, but you know, that's my you know English major two cents, I guess. Um, what do you? <laughs> Yeah, it all, it costs a little more than that. But uh, <laughs> UGA is a hell of a school. <laughs> uh, 
Now, uh, the other thing I noticed mm-hmm. in the story was a, a distinct emphasis on masculinity. Yes. And braveness right. as an element of masculinity. Right. What do you think about that? Do you think femininity is evil in this? I, the only femininity we see is the witch. And she is decidedly unhuman. She is unhuman and she is evil. I will say this. Female characters in uh, Howard's work tend to be objectified. Okay. There is um, there is one female, uh, the pirate Belit in the Conan saga, that Conan is really in love with and intends to spend, you know, and wants to spend his whole life with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of the rest of the women in the, in the Conan stories are, they're just, they're, they're set dressing. They're uh, like women in a, a 19, early 1970s horror movie. Yeah. Beautiful blonde, you know? Yeah. They're so, just there to look pretty and scream. Right. And Robert E. Howard, I think, other than his mother, pretty much, he, he, there was one relationship at one point in his life that, that is known about, and that relationship did not work out well. So I would say this was a man who did not have a whole lot of experience with women. I could see that. Yeah. And I, I may be dead wrong about that. It's just the... All the information I've ever seen about him, there was this one woman who was interested at one point, and that's the only woman that anybody knew about. Well, if you think about it, in the mm-hmm. story, the only woman we see, literally the only woman, mm-hmm. um, apart from a couple of references to Roman women really digging barbarian dudes. Right. You know, the only woman you see is the witch. Yes. The werewoman, as he calls her. Yes. Um, so she's associated with magic, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Magic is associated with degeneracy. Yes. Evil. Yes. So you set up this, you know, and historically magic has been uh, associated with women. Yes. You know, or at least if you think about the way that the witch is portrayed in popular culture, right? Yes. Let's just say that as a system, magic, magic is associated with female gods. It comes from associated with Isis. It's associated with Hecate. It comes from the female side. Mm -hmm. It's so. I never really thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and so there's this emphasis on male and female energy. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. And you think about him as a protagonist. He is so decidedly male. Yes. You know what I'm saying? In a yes. very classic way. He's a yes. king. He's stoic. He's mm-hmm. angry. He's good looking. He's yes. got a big long sword for whatever. Yes. You want to whatever that may mean, yes, yeah. We're not going to talk about the sword and the sheath the whole time. <laughs> um, but 
you know, there's a definite male and female here. Yeah. And oh, I, th yeah. I think that's really interesting, uh, especially considering the guy's biography, if he did not have a lot of experience with women. Right. Right. And he didn't. And Howard is fascinated. He is fascinated with his Scottish Irish roots. Mm -hmm. And this could be, uh, this has a lot in common. If you go back and read the Ulster Cycle or the Mabinogan, you read the warrior tales of Scotland and Ireland and Wales. This has a lot in common with it. The mm -hmm. exception is in the magic system, because when you read those historical tales uh, the she, the others, you know, some of them were good, some of them were bad, some of them were people you didn't want to mess with, but the, here it's uniformly bad. Oh, yeah. Which goes back to what you're saying. It is a very, uh, very male-centric view. Yeah. And the snake, as well, uh -huh. has often been associated with both temptation, uh -huh. right? Right. You know, you go back to the Garden of Eden story or... Um, the story of uh, there, there's a few creation uh, creation stories so, with because the, uh, the snake is associated the with the goddess. Yeah, and those creation stories are denigrating the goddess usually. Yeah, usually. Yeah, um, and so you have this idea of the snake, the serpent, de-evolution, which I mm -hmm. think is a very Lovecraftian idea. Yes. You know, uh, the rats in the wall, the lurking fear, uh, mm. the thing in the cave. I, I think that one's just called the cave. Isn't it? The cave, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's this whole idea of de-evolution in Lovecraft stories that I think plays out here, you know? Yes. yes. You know, and... Uh, what I think is really interesting, when we get back into that idea of the gray areas, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Bram McMorn is playing with powers he should not, right? Right. Powers he understands or thinks he understands, mm -hmm. but that are way beyond his control. And he knows it. Right. You know? But here's here to me is the eight hundred dollar question that I ask myself. Should be eight million, but that's out of sight. So we'll just say yeah. eight hundred. It's a down uh, economy. It's a down economy. Yeah. Were I in Brand McMorn's shoes, if I were king of the pips, and I stood there facing that pompous Roman governor who just executed one of my men before my eyes while he taunted me. Would I go see that witch? <laughs> to yeah. me, that's, that's the thing that I mean. I can sit here safe in my room with my Big River IPA and say, "Yeah, he shouldn't have done that." But would I do it? Well, you know, I think historically, people do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, think about the nuclear weapon. Yeah, the A bomb. Yes. You know, there was a distinct fear when it was being developed that ignite that setting it off would ignite the atmosphere. I'll tell you a story. It'd make you cry sometime, but yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, did they not set it off? No, they were like, fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. This doesn't light the air on fire. Hold my beer. <laughs> yeah. You know, 
Hold my beer. We're going to see how this thing goes. Mm-hmm. Now, when my uncle says that on 4th of July while he's looking in a bag of fireworks with a lighter, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> True story. Yeah. yeah. True story. Uh, I, I remember as a child going, that doesn't seem right, but, you know, he's an adult. <laughs> I remember my father and my uncle, we had a we had a 4th of July cookout. I was probably seven or eight years old. And there was an old house across the street. It had long been abandoned and the roof was falling in. I mean, it was insalvageable. And we'd cooked out and dad and my uncle had been drinking all day. Mm. 4th of uh, July. 4th of July. And uh, they started shooting fireworks about sunset, you know, and we're out there with them. My mom, my cousins and me. And, and uh, they started shooting these huge bottle rockets trying to hit the wind of that house. And, mom started getting angry and finally grabbed the kids and made us all go in and they're sitting out there drinking their, their beer and shooting bottle rockets at the house. And when I got in, I looked out the window back toward the yard and I seen them running, trying to run across the yard, carrying the cooler between them. And I saw the flames leaping up through the window of the house. You know, now I got kids, I realize like there's no entrance exam, you know? No. You're just the same dude, except now somebody's following you around going, You should be doing that. You supposed to be? And you're like, Yeah, dude, it's fine. Yeah, buddy. So um but no, I I, I think in summation, I really love this story. Um I thought it had a lot to say. Yeah. You know, um, we're going to keep coming back. I, I, I want to come back to Howard eventually. Oh, absolutely. I want to come back to Howard. I want to come back to Lovecraft. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, uh, I mean, we could, we could do podcasts for the next two years on Howard and Lovecraft. Exclusively. Yeah. Yeah. And it would be a good investment of time. (laughs) What? (laughs) That's a long dark road to hoe you know yeah, it is it is it so. is um but yeah that you can the howard you know if if you are familiar well i mean if you sit down to write fantasy mm-hmm. you're either and and you think about what's going to be on the jacket of that book when you get finished somebody is either going to compare you to robert e howard or they're going to compare you to J.R.R. token and I think those are the two sides of the coin. Exactly. You know, when I think about this, because I don't read a lot of fantasy, I don't dislike it. Right, right. Uh, there's very few genres of fiction I dislike. Yeah. Um, I'm not a huge romance fan. I'm not a huge fan of late modernism. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. As a movement, I find it a little dull. But yeah. uh, when you when you're looking at fantasy, you really got this either Tolkien, where everything is black and white, good and evil, mm-hmm. and optimistic. Yes. You no. Know? Yes. Uh, Frodo. Spoiler alert for what a you know century old work. Uh, Frodo gets the ring back. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And they destroy it. Yeah. They win. 
Yeah, they win. Mm-hmm. I don't think Brand wins. No. I mean, what what are your what are your what what would you call conditions for victory here? I, I think that that Brand one night wakes up and the worms of the earth are in his castle. Oh yeah. And if he's I, lucky. I have no doubt that that's how he ends. Oh yeah. If he's lucky, they're in it and not under it. Right. Right. And to me, okay. And I love token. Got to understand that's, that's one of my big things. I love token, but if the ring represents industrialization, mm-hmm. which I'm pretty certain it does. Yeah. Cutting down trees, manufacturing. Yeah. In the real world, the ring does not get destroyed. No. So I would make the I would make the argument that Robert E. Howard is a is a realist. Oh, I think so. I think so. Because we were talking about the nuclear weapon. We're talking about World War One. World War Two is looming on the horizon, you know? Yep. Yep. And but World War One shatters the reality. Yeah, it shatters everything. It, and, uh, you know, what we discussed a little bit, it didn't affect America as profoundly as it affected Europe. But Howard would have known men mm-hmm. that come back from the trenches and couldn't breathe because of mustard gas. Yeah. Yeah. So he would have he would have seen these people and would have heard the stories firsthand about World War One, that would have been in the back of his mind mm-hmm. all his life. Oh, yeah. For me, World War Two is in the back of my mind, probably more so than it is for you, because I was born much closer to it, and I grew up surrounded by men that had fought in World War Two. Yeah. So the events of World War Two are very close for me. Well, and I think your generation then grows up with a very Black and white, good and evil, because, mm-hmm. I mean. We did. Yeah, because I, I, the war like that for me, that was like my my parents' war was uh, the Vietnam War. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was my parents' war, too, but I, I grew up around a lot of folks that mm-hmm. fought in World War Two. Yeah. So yeah. that's why it's so close to me, I guess. Yeah, so. Uh, but. On the upside, this is he. He. It's almost a warning, mm-hmm. you know. And I think good fiction does that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. He's tell. He Howard is telling us not to mess with magic, and magic. You know. Is this computer magic? Robert E. Howard. It would have been. You know, any, uh, any technology advanced enough is magic. Yeah. Not saying that we shouldn't get on the computer, but what I am saying is that. Yeah, don't say that a, about a podcast. Huh? Don't say that on a podcast. <laughs> I'm saying that, that technology comes with the price. Mm-hmm. Magic comes with the price. Power comes with the price, too. Power comes with the price. Yes, absolutely. There's a price to be paid. Yeah. So, well, you got anything to promote this week? Well, I wanted to 
ask everybody, Tennessee Macabre right now, I've been working my tail off trying to build our social media footprint. So if you're on Facebook, please like us. If you're on Instagram, please like us. If you're on um, uh, Twitter, please like us. We have a YouTube page, and I just started a Vimeo page tonight. So okay. you, can actually, you can actually go stream our shows on Vimeo and YouTube. Please like us. Please follow us. Awesome. And that's what I want to promote tonight. What about yourself? I am always promoting Pulp Factory Easy. Mm-hmm. I think by the time this comes out, we will have kicked off our big announcement. We are expanding. Yes. So far, Pulp Factory has been uh, really focused on a monthly writing contest. Right. We're also going to start taking submissions just of pulp fiction in general. Oh, good. As well as an analysis and mm-hmm. doing some other stuff, some um, art features, some poetry, some... Uh, cryptid news, things like that. That is going to be fantastic. You know, I actually had a conversation with someone today who is doing a submission for this month who wanted to know if everything had to be from the prompts. And I said, well, right now it is. So I will tell him that that may be changing soon. He'll be, oh, it's going to change. Good. It's going to change. And, you know, right. um, you have not only some talented authors, but you have like, someone who's writing for you that's you know kind of a sex symbol oh you're talking about letters from the editor (laughs) (laughs) yeah we are actually serializing uh duke's novella right now which is uh fantastic work it combines uh God, it's really cool. It combines like westerns and Lovecraft, Lovecraft, and yes, yes, fantasy and horror. It's really uh, just the best kind of potpourri of genre literature. I, I love, I love writing it. So yeah, yeah. So. so, all right, guys. Well, tune in next week. We're going to be talking about Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, the cask of Amontillado. Let's say yeah. that right. Amontillado, yes. Amontillado, yes, I thought there so. There you go. I'm impressed because I had to look it up. <laughs> you just had it locked and loaded. <laughs> I took Spanish one for eight years, so I should know. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I came out of Spanish just learning how to say, you failed again, Mr. <laughs> Ray. So, all right. Well, that was... The Reaper's Digest, and we'll see you next uh, next time. <laughs>